0: right okay the, the last uh, talk in uh, our Titus uh, series uh, just find it now before I um, continue uh, with what we haven't done I just wanted to, to, to go back to um, one of the verses we saw last week because I just kind of uh, didn't didn't really bring something out that I wanted to. It kind of got a bit lost, and uh, it, it was um, in verse uh, four when uh, Paul was 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 saying to Titus about you know this is you know here's what the older women can be training the younger women, and we um, saw that uh, he said then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, and I think I homed in on the thing about husbands, but um, in regards to the children, I just want to home in on that because. Think, you know, this is something that is just so important for for us as Christians. Um, when you see where our culture has got today, it's really it's really quite frightening, you know. Um, I remember when I was younger, there you know there was still a bit you know this idea that children must be seen but not heard. Now I I never liked that anyway. It's pretty horrible if you think about it. Children must be seen but not heard. But ironically. Where we've come to in our society today is that now, not only must children not be heard, we don't even want them to be seen. And if you think about it, the way that our culture in the West works, and I sort of noticed this, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, like really from the word go after I became a Christian and it it sort of puzzled me. It's, It's that people have children. Of course, the tragic thing is that Christians do this as well. You know, we're supposed to be different from the world that people have children, they get married, they have children, and then they spend the rest of their children's childhoods getting rid of them. I mean, the moment they're old enough to go to preschool, off they go to preschool, then they're off to play school, then they're off to school, if you see what I mean. And the whole time, where, you know, sort of people handing their children over to other people. Whereas what we were seeing, you know, in, in here is that the Bible gives that responsibility to parents, you know, fathers and mothers. And yet the whole time we live in a culture where we're handing our children over. And then if you think about it, even when the children are at home, you know, I mean so you know I mean I'm not saying it's 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 wrong to have a babysitter here and there but think of the number of parents they've always got babysitters in because they're always off doing things With people looking after the children. So even when it comes to leisure time, when they could be with their children, very often they choose not to be, you get a babysitter in. You know, so you have, you know, sort of like paid babysitters called teachers looking after children all day, and then you bring in other babysitters in the evening and then mum and dad go off to do what they want to do. But then even if you think about it, even, say you've got time when children are at home at the same time as the parents. All right? Where are they? They're upstairs in their room with all the televisions, DVD players, video players and computers that parents buy them to keep them occupied and out from under their feet. And can you see how crazy this is that we're literally seeing generations of children brought up with hardly any contact significant contact with their parents? You see, this whole time that you know, sort of like you have children and then you spend the rest of their childhoods handing them over to other people so that you're not actually with them. Now, that's pretty awful. But when you tie it in with something else as well, because another thing, when I became a Christian, when I started to read the Bible, when I became familiar with the Christian scene, one of the you know, the, the, the grave concerns that I had about unbiblical churches, i.e. Church, you know, the vast majority of churches that exist, is that the, the way they're set up is that rather than undergirding and supporting and upbuilding family life, as indeed biblical churches do, what they do is all the time, they're fragmenting the family. So, you know, you go to the service and then there's Sunday school and there's youth church. And then during the week, there's youth clubs and all this sort of thing. And there you have, I mean, it's bad enough that our society is all the time tearing families apart. And, you know, but now, Well, it's not now, it's always been the case. You don't even have to spend time with your children when you go to church, do you? And if you think about it, everything, this whole thing from every direction in our society and from the church as well, family unity and family togetherness is under severe attack. And even Christians are not questioning it. Now, when you compare that, you know, sort of like to what the Bible teaches about what a church is, And you think, you come along to church on a Sunday, you're in someone's house. It's like an extended family. The children are there. They're part of the gathering. There's none of this, you know, sort of like the children hiving off and being handed over to other people. It's that recognition that our children are our responsibility. They're the responsibility of parents, mum and dad. They're not the responsibility of other people. And so I just wanted to, you know, bring that out. You know, they here. you know, when Paul was saying, then they, the older women, can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. And, And surely fundamental to any relationship is spending time together. And this is tragically something that Christians, are, you know, that families do less and less. Obviously, marriage breakdown, more and more divorces, more and more single-parent families. But it's happening amongst Christians, and that's the dreadful thing. And the reason it's happening amongst Christians is that we're, that we're just thinking the same way that the world thinks. And, you know, so really, you know, it's, it's a real great challenge. Perhaps one of the, I mean, I would say the two greatest challenges that faces us as Christians today is the challenge to return to biblical family life and biblical church life. And if you think about it, they're extensions of each other. What is a church? It's an extended family. A church is an extended family of individual families. And everything of the design of church life is there to augment, build up, and support family life. Holding families together rather than fragmenting them the way that unbiblical churches do, and the way that just about every aspect of, of modern life does. So uh, I just wanted to um, get back to that, and uh, just to, to bring that out a bit. Okay, right, so um, let's, let's read um, the remainder of... Um, uh, let's, let's just read, we're on chapter 2, let's read verse 11 through to 15 first. And Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness um, and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you." So he says, look, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And of course, it is to all men. Paul says in Romans that all are without excuse and throughout the bible we i mean even you know the the heavens you know proclaim the glory of god that the fundamental truth of the gospel is actually in all men's hearts it's written on their heart and so that grace of god has appeared to all men and uh, but he says the grace of god that brings salvation and of course just to underline here that salvation is all about what it is grace it is grace grace Grace, and often we've done it here, haven't we? G R A C E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And fundamentally, the word, the Greek word grace uh, for grace, caris, it means undeserved kindness, it means to look favourably on someone instead of unfavourably. And so, the whole point is the essence of what Jesus has done for us is that He's given us what we don't deserve and that's what grace does law gives you what you deserve well grace gives us what we don't deserve now what do we deserve we deserve god's judgment but god in his grace instead has given us a welcome into his family he's made us right before him so that's you know that's what what grace is all about we did nothing to to get it this salvation it's purely a gift of god but look what else he says And this is tremendously important because obviously grace can be abused. One can think, oh, well, it's God's grace, I'm forgiven. Hey, I can just live as I like. Now, look what Paul immediately says about this grace. It brings salvation, yes. As a free gift, we're going to heaven. But it says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, that that word teaches, it's not actually the Greek word for teaches. It's peduo, it's the word for child training. And what it's saying is that God's grace... God has not just uh, kind of saved us so that we can go to heaven. He's saved us so that we can actually live holy lives in this life now. And this training, this is, you know, like in Hebrews, um, you know, the writer talks about whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And, that you know, we we know, don't we, that throughout our lives, all through different circumstances, all the time God is working in us to discipline us, to... To, to bring us to the point where we're all the time becoming the children that he wants us to be. So not just becoming his children, i.e. being born again and becoming a Christian and getting saved, but to grow up into mature godly children. To actually be like, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. So that we are actually like him. And uh, you know, so the reason for this, this training is that we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So the whole point is that we're 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 saying no to ourselves. He says to live self-controlled. Now we've seen you know that that word before um, in earlier talks. Sophronus it means a a saved mind. Okay, so saved thinking that we ought to be, you know, thinking in the way that the Bible teaches. Not you know not just doing our own thing, and he says we should be upright, and we saw that that was uh, the Greek word, the chaos, and it's sort of someone who, who's, who's straight down the line, or to put it another way, someone who lives by the book, we saw that when we were dealing with eldership, didn't we, and the qualifications, and so it's important that we we, we live absolutely... You know, are called it, play it by the book, i.e. the Word of God, doing exactly what the Bible teaches. And he says that we live godly lives in this present age. And if you think, what does godly mean? What does it actually mean to be godly? Well, it means to be like God is. And that's literally it, to be like God, like Father, like Son. And so this, this grace is, is not just to get us to heaven. I mean, yeah, that's ultimately what it's going to do. God's grace, Jesus has saved us. We're going to heaven. You know, We're going to end up in heaven with the Lord. But the point is we're meant to be going to heaven on a little bit of heaven. Now, when we do get to heaven, when we die or when the Lord comes back, at the rapture, and takes us to heaven, when we get to heaven, we will be sinless because we'll have lost our bodies and the sinful nature resides in the human body. We'll get glorified once. So the point is when we get to heaven, we'll be sinless. So if we're going to be going to heaven on a bit of heaven, then what does that mean in regards to sin? It means that our experience should be not that we're ever going to be sinless in this life. No, of course not. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But the point is, it should be an experience, an ongoing experience of an overcoming of sin. So that literally, more and more, we're becoming less like we used to be before we got saved, and more and more like we're going to be when eventually we do get home to heaven. And so it's important to see that, that this grace yet it's for salvation, in the sense that to save us from the penalty of sin, we're never going to face God's judgment. But, as we saw in the salvation series, it's not just the question of being set free from the penalty of sin. He wants to set us free from the power of sin. And that's an ongoing thing. So not just saved to go to heaven, but saved to be becoming godly people while we're in this life on our way to heaven. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be back to that shortly. Um, and then in verse 13, and he says, all this is going on while we wait for the blessed hope. Now, what's the blessed hope? The glorious appearing of our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to digress onto something else here. Um, And what I want to digress onto, I just want to underline what... Now, I'm doing this from the New International Version. And what we've got here is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to digress onto, just uh, for a short while here, is something that is becoming... Um, increasingly uh, kind of well-known in Christian circles. There's a a controversy that's going on, and uh, and it's good for us to be aware of it. And it's basically, it's become known as the King James Version-only controversy. There are an increasing number of Christians who believe that the King James Version is the only version of the Bible that is any way accurate. Now, let me just give you a brief history of this. The difference between the King James Version and the modern translations is that they're translated from different sets of manuscripts, all right? So the King James Version, all right, is translated from manuscripts, uh, a set of manuscripts that were discovered at a certain time, okay, and they're kind of there. Now, more recent since the King James Version was translated, all right, Other manuscripts that predate the manuscripts that the King James Version is based on have been discovered. Now normally when it comes to stuff like manuscripts and that, the older they are, the more likely they are to be accurate. So therefore, because manuscripts have been discovered that are older than the ones that we have before, the modern translations are translated using those older manuscripts. However, the proponents of the King James Version-only debate maintain that these manuscripts that modern translations are based on, even though they are indeed older, nevertheless they say that they are corrupted manuscripts and that this is actually a satanic ploy. That Satan is, is, is working here to deceive Christians and to, to, to bring them away from the true gospel and the truth of the Bible. So the story is that these manuscripts, that for instance the NIV and all the modern translations are based on, the the argument goes that these manuscripts are corrupted. They were corrupted by the Gnostics who didn't believe that Jesus was God. And that what they do is that the modern translations play down the divinity of Jesus. They obscure the divinity of Jesus and they sort of distort certain aspects of the teaching um, of the Bible. So in effect, what these people are saying is that if you're using any Bible other than the King James Version, you have literally what they call a perverted Bible. They say you do not have the the truth as it should be because it's been translated from manuscripts that were deliberately corrupted by false teachers who didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus. Now, that's basically the way the argument goes. Now, I'd be the first to say, if there's any truth in that argument, it's one of the most important subjects on the Christian scene today. However, I intend to show you now, in the next five minutes, that it really is complete nonsense. But the reason that I'm drawing attention to this is because literally, I mean, not so much, you know, sort of like in this country, but literally Christians are dividing over this. And and certainly, I mean, you know, for... You know, all the years that I've known the Lord, every now and then I've bumped into people who hold to this. You know, and they're very strong. You know, and they say, look, you've, you've got to get a true Bible. Because if you're not using the King James Version, then you're not getting the actual truth. Now then, so what has that got to do with that verse I read in Titus? Okay, remember, the argument goes that if you're reading any version other than the King James Version, then that version of the Bible, be it the NIV, RSV, New American Standard, whatever, is going to downplay the divinity of Jesus in a way that the King James Version doesn't. So if you read the King James Version you're going to get a much broader understanding of the truth of the gospel and the divinity of Jesus. Whereas if you read the NIV, you, it's going to obscure it. Okay, The modern translations obscure the truth of the gospel and obscure the divinity of Jesus. Now, bearing that in mind, let's ask a question. Was the NIV, for instance, could be true of any of the modern translations. I'm using the NIV here. Okay, Was this written by people who were deliberately trying to obscure the divinity of Jesus, okay? Now, and I'm going to read that verse again from Titus, from the NIV, that we read, and it says this. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm now going to read that same verse from the King James Version. See if you can spot uh, something here. Um, And it's this, this is the King James Version, the same verse, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you can see, in actual fact, if you compare those two verses, it's the NIV and not the King James Version that explicitly states there that Jesus is God. Because if you read the NIV, it says our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So God and Jesus are the same person. That is only talking about one person, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. There is only one person who is the subject of that sentence. But in the King James Version, I'll read it again, it says the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, what the manuscript that the King James Version is based on says at that point, it introduces the Father and the Son. So in the King James Version, it is not a proof text that Jesus is God. But in the NIV, it is a proof text that Jesus is God. Now, let's not just leave it there. I'm going to read 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and the first verse. And I'm going to read it, first of all, from um, the King James Version. And uh, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, in that sentence in the King James Version, that sentence speaks of two persons, God and Jesus Christ. So in the King James Version, you cannot establish from that verse, you could from others in the King James Version, but you couldn't establish from that verse whether Jesus is a divine being. He's mentioned here God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. But now, let's read that same verse in the NIV, the New International Version. And here it is. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Exactly the same thing. In the NIV, this verse, 2 Peter 1.1, becomes a proof text, totally clear that Jesus is God. Whereas, in the King James Version, just like the Titus verse, it's obscured. It speaks of God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So it's no longer a proof text that Jesus is God himself. Now then, let me say, that doesn't make the King James Version a bad translation because there are one or two other verses where the King James Version brings out something much more clearly about the divinity of Jesus than, for instance, the NIV does. The simple fact of the matter is that with these different manuscripts, there are differences between the manuscripts. And I've just shown you a difference. And it swings and roundabouts. But the important thing to realize is that when people maintain that only the manuscripts that the King James Version is based on are the true ones, then that's nonsense. Because if it's in any way true at all that the manuscripts, okay, that the NIV was based on, So the people who originally wrote those manuscripts and the people today translating them, the idea is that both the writers of the original manuscripts and the people who prepared them for translations were deliberately trying to obscure the divinity of Jesus. We can only say in the light of just these two verses, they didn't do a very good job, did they? And so the whole point is, it is a nonsensical argument, but it's one that sadly, I mean I've known Christians, that this becomes virtually the most important thing in their lives. You see what I mean? It becomes their main crusade. And it's based on a complete and utter misunderstanding. So therefore, as long as there are verses in modern translations which bring out the divinity of Jesus more clearly than the King James Version does, then any argument that the King James Version alone is the only accurate and inspired translation of the Bible, well, it really does fall to the ground. So we'll, we'll leave that one there, but given that one of these key verses is in Titus, and I've read the books written by the King James Version only people, and they never ever mention these verses. All they do is they highlight the verses in the modern translations, which obscure something that the King James Version brings out clearly. All they do is that and then say the King James Version is the only one you can trust. But what they don't do, they completely ignore all the verses where the modern translations bring a truth of the Gospel out more clearly than the King James Version does. So it really is horses for courses. And, uh, you know, and I, you know I, I th- any idea that one set of manuscripts over the other is better, I think is just daft. The beauty is we've got both sets and we can compare them. But simply, you know, I mean, I always think of it like this. Let's say that you had 20 highly intelligent Martians. They landed in the front garden, all right? And they were incredibly intelligent, but they had no preconceived ideas, no understanding about about the Bible whatsoever, all right? Now, if you gave each of these 20 Martians 20 different versions of the Bible, so one of them has got the King James Version, and the rest of them have got all the other modern translations, all right? And then you said to these Martians, go away, read the Bible, memorise it, all right? Understand it. So these Martians, they read their, you know, whatever translation of the Bible you've given them. If you were then to set each one of them an incredibly detailed, you know, sort of like multiple answer questionnaire about every facet of the Christian faith, do you know each one of them will tick exactly the same boxes? Because even though one translation may fall down on a verse about something here, the point is they've all got other verses that say the same thing quite clearly elsewhere. So it doesn't matter that the NIV obscures here and there the divinity of Jesus because it's got other verses that make it absolutely clear. And it's exactly the same for the King James Version. It doesn't matter that the King James Version obscures two verses where the modern translations explicitly state the divinity of Jesus. And the reason it doesn't matter is because there are other verses in the King James Version that explicitly state the divinity of Jesus. So have you got the point? The King James Version only controversy is really, it's a red herring and I actually think it's not, it's not that the devil has got perverted translations of the Bible going around, but he has got certain Christians absolutely obsessed with the idea that only one translation of the Bible is accurate and it is actually dividing churches across the world and it's a tragedy. So anyway, just... Um, Chuck that in for, for good measure. Okay, right, so now we'll, we'll go back to what, what Paul was actually saying there. That was a, a digression. And uh, he says, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So no question about the divinity of Jesus there. He says, who gave himself for us. Now remember, we're saying that Paul is saying that God's grace isn't just to get us to heaven. It's to make us godly. It's to train us in godliness. And he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself of people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, redemption, yeah, in the salvation series we saw that redemption is out of the slave market of sin. Jesus has paid the price so that we can come out of the slave market of sin. Therefore, we are redeemed. You redeem a slave. okay? But it's not just that we're redeemed in order to come out of the slave market of sin, become a child of God and go to heaven. We're redeemed from all wickedness. You see the point? So it's not just the going to heaven, it's the coming into living a godly life as well. And in the Bible, these things are always linked. Okay, that there's there's nothing in the Bible of, well, just believe on Jesus and get saved and that's it, and then just go to heaven. Now, if you've believed in Jesus, you're going to heaven. But the whole point is the Bible always says, right, you've come to know the Lord. God's grace has saved you from the penalty of sin. So now go on to experience what it is to be set free from the power of sin in your life as well. Okay. And uh, so we should, you know, God is purifying a people us who are to be his very own eager to do what is good and that word eager it's the word that zealot comes from it's the greek word for a zealot and obviously a zealot was a sort of like a fanatical political person they totally obsessed with um you know kind of like their political you know the you know the zealots were the, the the like terrorists they were like the ira um in israel and they wanted to get the romans out even if it meant killing them and uh so where to be zealots but zealous for doing what is right, doing good, okay, following the Lord. Right, Uh, and then in verse 15 he says, these then are the things that you should teach. Remember, Titus is leading these churches until they have raised up and recognized elders And then obviously Titus can move on. So obviously in that sense, whatever Titus is being told here, is the equivalent of the the particular responsibilities of eldership. Okay, So he says, these then are the things that you should teach. And he says, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now that encourage, that's parakaleo, we saw it in an earlier talk, means to call someone to your side. When Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit being our uh, comforter and when John in his epistle talks about Jesus being our advocate, it's exactly the same word. And it's a legal term and it's your defense lawyer. It's, it, it's, it's the person who comes alongside you and represents your case in court. All right. And so really what he's saying is, look, Titus, draw people alongside you. Call them to your side this isn't a kind of a you know a bossy authoritarian well this is what i'm teaching you and this is what you've got to do it's not like that it's calling people to your side because you're amongst them you're not leading from on high you're amongst the people and it's saying hey we need to be doing this together okay so encourage and he says rebuke and that's the word he lent show it means to convict of sin so yeah that's part and parcel of it as well there are times when We need to get a slap on the wrist. There are times when we need to be told off. And uh, it doesn't mean here that only a leader, only an elder can tell you off because elsewhere the Bible tells us to correct one another. But certainly there is a time for anyone in leadership where maybe someone is going to need a telling off and a rebuke. That's what it means. And so therefore that needs to be done. There's a place for that. Uh, Obviously it shouldn't be too, you know, I mean going around rebuking people all the time will be ridiculous. But nevertheless there is a place uh, for that. And, uh, and, and he says, do it with all authority as well, obviously, because this is what the Word of God teaches, and the Word of God is authoritative. And then he says, do not let anyone despise you. Now, that that, that word despise is interesting. It's periphroneo and it, it, it comes from two different Greek words, and it, it, it means to get around and to think. And it means don't let anyone get around you in regards to all this. You see what I mean? So there's a sense in which he is maintaining the righteousness of God, what the Bible teaches. This is the truth. All right. And obviously elders are, you know, almost personifying that. But then there are times when there are people who want to they want to get around it. And we all know that we want to get around something, don't we? It's in our way. We don't like it. And what Paul is saying to to Titus, he says, look, there are going to be people. They're going to try and get around you. And he says, don't let them. You've got to stop them. Don't let anyone get round you on these things because there's no compromise on these things. There's no negotiation. This is what living the Christian life is, and this is what you've got to be teaching. So let's move into chapter three. And he says, um, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Um, You know, so obviously, we've got to be good, law abiding citizens whether we agree with the government or not and it's always worth remembering that um when you know at the time of the early church i mean when paul was writing this uh it was the roman empire um you know i mean whatever government i mean the worst of that we've got to offer are just i mean you know they're just saints compared with what the roman government was like and uh, you know and i mean peter wrote to be said honor the emperor so you know, I mean, we might have a job sometimes, uh, you know, doffing our caps too much for our prime minister. But the early church were told to honour the emperor. So the point is, yeah, we've got to be good, law-abiding citizens. No question about that, and ready to do whatever is good. You know, so helpful, always, always ready. Any helpful service that we can render to people, and he says, slander no one. Um, that's obviously. Slander—it's when you use the tongue to destroy people. It's totally common. It's part and parcel of the sinful nature. So, where to make sure that we don't slander anyone? And and he says to be peaceable. Now, this this word peaceable—it's a makos, and it's the negative a of the verb uh, of of the noun makhe, which is a fight. And and he's saying you must be peaceable people, as opposed to the type of person who's looking for a fight. Now, you know, we you know, we all know there are some they're always ready for a fight, aren't they? They're always ready for an argument. Uh they're always gonna you know, they're always gonna play devil's advocate. You know, now he says, no, don't be like that. Be peaceable. Elsewhere in Ephesians, I think it is, Paul says, insofar as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So the point is other people may decide to fight you. You can't have, you know, you can't have any control over that. But the point is you're not fighting them. You're not starting any fight. And, you know, so that's tremendously important, to be, you know, well, not a fighter. And he said, and then he says to be considerate. Now, that's epikes, and it means to be moderate, to be fair-minded. It's the Greek word for mild. In contrast to these people who are raving protagonists. Do you know what I mean? People with the B in their bonnet. And there's always stuff that they feel so strongly about. You see what I mean? And everywhere they go, they can't let go of these things. And they're always causing division and starting fights just because they feel so strongly about things and they don't in any way temper themselves. Well, Paul says, no, that's, you know, we're not to be like that, okay? And then he says, and to show true humility towards all men. Now that word humility, priorities, it's, it's actually the word for meekness. Now what you've got here is if considerate epikes, fair minded, if that speaks of the outward behaviour and demeanour, all right, how we are outwardly, then meekness is the inner condition that leads to that behaviour. You see what I mean? So if you've got someone who is moderate, fair milded, a fair minded, they're mild people, all right? Then it's because we, we put those phrases together, meek and mild, don't we? It's because they have a meekness on the inside. And this is the meekness that is the opposite of the self assertiveness of the fighters. You know, the people who always need to be heard. They've always got to get their, you know, ten cents worth in. Okay. Meekness is is that accepting of God's dealings in our lives, accepting of his discipline, without disputing, without overmuch resisting. And when you live like that, that brings an inner peace. And if you're at peace with God, and if you're at peace with yourself, then you're not going to be at war with other people. Do you see the point? So if you've, if you've got a fundamental inner peace, you are, as Paul says, going to be peaceable. So if you have no axes to grind with the Lord, all right, if you're living right with him, okay putting right when you go wrong, I'm not saying never sinning, but when you do sin, any rebellion, you deal with it quickly, okay, then if you haven't got any access to grind with the Lord, you're not going to have any access to grind with other people, okay, particularly your brothers and sisters, and we're going to be back to this when we hit some uh, verses about uh, divisive Christians in a minute, and say so we've, you know, we've all met them, they're even Christians, that they are these divisive people, they're the opposite of this, they're not peaceable, they're not fair-minded, they don't have that meekness. They're on a crusade and they're gonna say what they wanna say, they're gonna spread what they wanna spread, they're gonna do what they wanna do, regardless of the effects it has on other people. And another aspect of meekness, as, as kind of you know taught in the Bible, is it's the idea of controlled strength. So that when you get someone who's meek, it doesn't mean that they're weak. You see, I mean, like, like that old joke, the meek will inherit the earth if that's okay with the rest of you, all right. Meekness is not weakness. Can you see the difference? Because obviously, all these injunctions apply to Titus and apply to elders. I mean, especially apply to elders. But we've seen as well that elders have got to be the absolute stone wall that rebels can't get through. Can you see what I mean? So elders have got to know when to be tough. But it doesn't mean at the same time they're not meek because meekness is not the absence of strength. It's the presence of strength, but strength that is being controlled. So can you see the point? So it's, it's, it's like the broken stallion. If you've got a stallion before it's broken, all that strength it's got is dangerous. You know, when you try to go and break it, a stallion will kill you without thinking. It will just kick you and jump all over you. So it's got all that strength, but that strength is dangerous. But once that stallion has been broken, Its strength hasn't gone anywhere, it's as strong as it was before, but now it's safe. Because its strength is now used to serve its master, i.e. the rider, the cowboy, who's broken it and rides it. Now that's exactly what the law's doing to us. He wants to break us so that we become safe, so that all our strengths and characteristics and attributes, personalities, are no longer dangerous, i.e. purely self-serving but surrendered to him so that he can use us to be a blessing to other people. And so the point is there, we can't master sin, but we can let Jesus master us. When he masters us, when there's that brokenness, then there is that safety. You become a peaceable person. You become a meek person. Not that you're weak, not that you don't have any strength, but that you control it. You don't use it for your own you know, sort of like purposes. It's there to be surrendered to the Lord and to be a blessing to other people. So that's tremendously important. Don't slander, be peaceable, considerate, and show true humility to all men. And then Paul says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, um, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And Paul says, look, let's never forget, that's what we were like. That was us before we were saved. That was us before God's grace brought us into his kingdom and changed us. I mean, Paul, what was Paul's hobby before he became a Christian? Throwing other Christians into prison to face all manner of torture, death. I mean, he was horrible bloke. But that's us. That's before we were saved. And we must never ever forget that. And particularly in not slandering people and being peaceable, considerate, humble. How can we be anything else in the light of what we've been rescued from? Obviously, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? And then he says, <coughs> But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So again, it's, it's all, all of him. It's his goodness, it's his loving kindness, it's, it's completely his mercy. And it was all you know, sort of through the appearing of Jesus. And it says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there you've got rebirth, being born again when we believed in Jesus, we were born again, we received a, a, a new nature, we received a new life, we became one with Jesus. It, everything he is, he's one with us, he shared it with us. That's what being born again is. And, and he says through renewal as well, that when we were born again of the Holy Spirit, we were renewed by the Holy Spirit. I, we were made new. Let's just, let's just go, to, um, go to Colossians chapter 3. Let's just see a couple of other verses from Paul. Colossians 3, and in verse 5 he says, Put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Paul's saying, there's a new you, the moment you were born again. But put that new you on, live in that new life, not in the old life. And in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, another parallel passage. And in verse 22, he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. It still is. Sinful nature hasn't gone anywhere. I've still got a sinful nature, and it's still being corrupted by its deceitful desires. But the choice is, what am I going to live in? The sinful nature or the new nature? And he says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, the new you, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The whole point. We've been made new. The moment we were born again, we received a new nature. Now, it's down to us which nature we're going to live in. That's the whole point about it, okay? Um, and, and obviously there's... Oh, yeah, let's let's do the two, 2 Corinthians ones. 2 Corinthians... I think it's 5. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17. And he says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone and the new has come. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You've been born again. You've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, live in that nature. All this godliness that he's talking about that we ought to be living in, that's what the new nature is like, okay? And uh, and then he says uh, he's been talked about you know renewal by the Holy Spirit and he said whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour now that's that that's a lovely Trinity verse uh, there, there are loads of Trinity verses but there's a lovely one there he. Going back to verse 4, he's talking about God our Saviour, all right. So he, God our Saviour, saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So it's just a lovely Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, everything they do, they do together. So he says, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And he going round and round in circles here all the time. Back to the fact it's all of God's grace. Um, We've been justified. What does that mean? Past salvation, set free from the penalty of sin, justified, never sinned, all right? So, and that's purely by His grace. It was His mercy, it was a gift. It was nothing whatsoever to do with us at all. Like I was sharing on Sunday when Lazarus was raised from the dead, we asked the question, didn't we? In what way did Lazarus contribute towards his resurrection from the dead? He didn't he was dead and then suddenly he was alive now then for us we were dead in trespasses and sins we were unbelievers and suddenly well we believed in Jesus didn't we Well that was we didn't do anything to contribute to that that was something God did to us He gave us life he gave us faith in Jesus he gave us the gift. Of repentance it's all of grace we didn't contribute to it we didn't earn it it's absolutely the free gift of god all right and then he says that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life now all his earlier on we saw awaiting the appearing of the lord jesus and all, all the time in paul's thinking here it's it's the fact that we've been saved from the penalty of sin and of course we've, we're going we're going to reach the goal, we're going to end up glorified, we're going to end up in heaven with the Lord, that's our hope. And so therefore, because of that, because we have been saved from the penalty of sin, and because one day we're going to be free even from the presence of sin, therefore we should live life down here being set free from the power of sin. You see, all all these things go together. And this thing about heirs is, is our proof of salvation. OK, go, go to Ephesians one, because obviously when Paul talks about being heirs, it's the same Paul who wrote to the Ephesian church. So we're going to uh, they'd have been aware what he was meaning and we can see it as well. Ephesians. Chapter one. And read verses 13 and 14. And he says, and you also were included in Christ When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, the seal, in the ancient world, uh, a a seal, if a king wrote a letter, he'd seal it, he'd stamp it, have his seal on it. And if, um, I mean, that, the whole power and authority of the king was there to make sure that what was in that envelope or that parchment couldn't be taken out until it arrived. You see what I mean? So the point is the king wanted this to go to a particular person, all right? So he's got communication and it's got to go to a certain place. So he'd seal it. If anyone broke that seal, it was the death penalty. The only person who could open that seal was the person it was addressed to, alright? Now, so the point of the picture here is that, that, that God is the king of the universe, he is ultimately powerful. So he's put us in the envelope with Jesus, and he's sealed us, and he's addressed us to heaven. What's going to get us out of that envelope? What's going to get us out of Jesus? I mean, we're going to heaven in Jesus, who's going to get us out of Jesus? Can you see? The whole point, this idea of seal is that you are going to get to where you've been posted to. And the moment we were born again, God posted us to heaven. Do you see what I mean? And we're going to get there. And then he says, you marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So what Paul says is the mere fact that you have the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you're going to come into the whole inheritance in the future when you're glorified. So, you know, again, there, you know, this is why any, any question of losing salvation and Christians ending up in the lake of fire is just, is just not what the Bible teaches. You're guaranteed to get to heaven, and the guarantee is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. How can you know the Holy Spirit is in your life? Well, Paul says, no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what you did when you got saved. You believed in Jesus, you said Jesus is Lord. That's proof of your salvation and nothing is gonna stop you actually getting to heaven. But can you see the way that, you know, sort of Paul ties these things up all the time. By God's grace, you have been saved, you've been justified. Therefore, nothing is gonna stop you from getting where you're going. You're going to be glorified with the Lord. You're going to be just like him. Therefore, this is how you ought to live in the interim, living a godly life. And the incentive to holiness in the Bible is not if you don't live a holy life, God's going to throw you out, you're going to go to the lake of fire. That, that's not. The push is, wow, because one day you're going to be sinless and glorified just like Jesus. My goodness, you ought to be starting, you know, getting on with that process now. It's kind of, how can you not love God after everything he's done for you? You see what I mean? That's the appeal to holiness in the Bible, not the threat that we'll lose our salvation um, if we're not faithful to him. (coughs) And uh, let's see. And then uh, in verse 8, he says, This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things (coughs) so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, when he says, I want you to stress these things, so everything that Paul has written to Titus, remember, he's told him to, you know, to encourage and to rebuke with all authority, not to let anyone get round him. And now he says, look, (coughs) stress these things. Now, this is a dreadful Greek word, it's diababouomai. I think. I won't be held accountable for pronunciation on any Greek word, but especially not that one. But that's the word, and it means to assert strongly and confidently. So what Paul is saying is, look, you know, Titus, these things, you you strongly assert these things to people. Make sure that they know that this is what they need, and they need it in order that the people in the churches that Titus is responsible for are living aright and growing in the Lord. So that all of them are, um, uh, you know, sort of doing what is good and he says these things are excellent and are profitable for everyone. Now when it says here, this is interesting as well, he says that, that they may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, that's an interesting word, because um, it's priest to me. And interestingly, when you, and going back to translation thing now, because there are certain areas where all the translations, King James Version and the whole lot are dreadful. All right, and they just don't translate Greek words really as they should be translated, because obviously the translators they kind of have their own beliefs and and stuff like that. Let me let me show you what I mean. This word "pros" to me is here translated "devoted." All right. Now, if you go to One Thessalonians chapter five, One Thessalonians chapter five, and I want to just going to read uh, verse 12, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 12. Now, we ask you, brothers, and this is Paul's here talking about leadership, he's talking about elders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Now then, where's proestomy there? Proestomy, elsewhere in the Bible, gets translated, be devoted to, or it can get translated to care for. There, believe it or not, it's translated over you. Okay? Over you. Now, what does that do? That paints the picture that leadership of churches have authority over the people in the churches. You see what I mean? Makes it sound hierarchical. That word there is proestomy. That word, that verse should be translated, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you and who care for you Or who are devoted to you in the Lord. What a difference. But translators, (coughs) because virtually all Christians, you know, sort of have this belief that leadership in churches is hierarchical, (coughs) it's not what the Bible teaches, but therefore that gets translated into the Bible, even though if you go to the actual Greek words, you'll find that that's not what they actually mean. I'll show you another example. Go to 1 Timothy, and again regarding elders here. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and he says uh, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor now then again that who direct the affairs of the church now other translations come up with different ways of saying it but can you see it paints the picture as if they are in charge they are the authority now obviously we adhere to the biblical principle we see in the in the new testament that churches govern themselves it's the body it's the gathered church that seeks the Lord and hears His voice. It's not, you know, leaders telling everyone what they've got to do. And again, this translation here, directly affairs of the church. No, that's pro Easter me. So again, it should be, you know, the the elders who care for the church, who are kind of devoted to the church. It's it's a completely different concept, isn't it? And uh, I mean, while while we're on that, just just go to Hebrews, and I'll show you the biggie. There's not much in the Bible about um the leadership of leaders, but when you do get it, it's usually in our Bibles pretty badly um, translated. If if you go to uh, Hebrews 13, and and you get this, this dreadful, dreadful verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work would be a joy, not a burden for that will be of no advantage to you. So we've got two obeys here and a submit. Now, you know, sort of crumbs, what are we going to do with that? Well, the first thing here is, and, and, and in this regards, the NIV is the naughtiest of all, right? It's got obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Now, I think the NIV is the only translation that puts their authority. That is not even in the Greek at this point. I mean, they just put that in for sheer effect which is so naughty, all right? So that, the word authority does not appear in any manuscript at that point in the Greek, all right? But we've still got obey twice and submit. Well, let's do obey. Obey your leaders and then again, obey them, all right? Now then, obviously there are verses in the Bible that say, for instance, children, obey your parents. And there are verses in the Bible that say, you know, obey the governing authorities. Now, that's a Greek word that specifically means to obey someone because they are in authority over you. So that's the standard Greek word for obey, dikahu, right? That's not the word here. Dikahu does not appear in this verse. The word here translated obey is pytho. And elsewhere in the New Testament, when pytho gets translated, all the translations, all of them do it, they'll translate it accurately as meaning be persuaded by, have faith in, trust. And pytho is, is the same word as a believer. It's just a different variation on the word for a believer. To have faith. And really what this is saying is not obey your leaders. It's not saying you have to do what, you're, what, what the elders say because they're in authority over you. No, it's saying be willing to be persuaded by them. Trust them. You know, you recognise them after all, didn't you? That's what he's saying. Trust them. doesn't mean you've got to do whatever they say and agree with everything they say, but it's saying you've got to trust them. Uh, You know, be willing to be persuaded by them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It's a very, very different feel to obey. And this word submit, again, there are verses in the Bible, wives submit to husbands, etc., etc., submit to the governing authorities. And that's a Greek word that means to submit to someone because they're in authority over you. That's not the Greek word here. The Greek word here is hupeiko, and it's the only time this Greek word appears in the New Testament. And it does mean to submit, but it doesn't mean to submit to authority. It means to submit to greater strength. So if you were being invaded by a nation that's stronger than you, you're gonna submit to them. Do you see what I mean? Because they're gonna beat you. And so, what the writer is saying here is he's not saying that leaders are in authority over you, and you've got to do whatever they say, but he's saying, look, be willing to give your leaders the benefit of the doubt. Don't come out fighting against them all the time. Because if you do that, they'll win. See what I mean? Because God will back the elders, assuming the elders not wrong. So what he's saying is, he says, look, <coughs> give your elders the benefit of the doubt. Trust them. Be willing to be persuaded by them. Um, you know, sort of like, you know, don't fight them, you know, uh, and, and so, so their work will be a joy, not a burden. And that, that's really what that verse is saying. But when you put words like obey and submit to their authority, it, you know, it changes it completely. <clears throat> and so obviously one has to be aware of that. And, um, you know, that there are times, you know, the, 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 this is why whenever possible to get back to the original Greek, which is, you know, why God raises up Bible teachers and has people write commentaries and Vine's Expository dictionary of the Bible. So all the time going back to the original meaning of the Greek, okay. Right, so um, then... Paul uh, now returns to what he was on and majored on earlier on in the letter, and he returns to this whole aspect about how to deal with the troublemakers. And we saw, you know, when when Paul was telling Titus, look, here are the qualifications of the elder, we saw that one of the um, things that an elder had to be able to do was not simply to teach what is true doctrine, but he had to be able to refute, bad doctrine refute false teaching and to do so in such a way that it convicted of you know the the person doing the false teaching of sin. So that's 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 actually quite quite heavy. And now he, he, he returns to this and he says, Look, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because they are unprofitable and useless. Now here for the Jews genealogies and stuff about the law. Basically, it's majoring on minors. There are always people who, who, who want to, you know, they've, they've got the, you know, the bees in their bonnet and they want some, well, I mean, you know, like the King James Version controversy, I mean, that's a classic example. There are Christians, they live to convert people to their way of thinking. And whatever church they go to, that's the subject that they bring up. That's the subject they pursue. Do you see what I mean? And what Paul is saying, look, all stuff like that, avoid avoid it all. It's foolish controversies. It's not important, you know, it's people majoring on minors, and all it does is, is, is to create dissension. And then in verse 10, now he says, so here ultimately is how you handle the people who do this sort of stuff, okay? He says, warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful he is self-condemned okay now that's that's quite heavy stuff this divisive the word divisive a divisive person the greek word is hereticos it's where we get the word heretic from now it doesn't it doesn't mean someone who's teaching something that isn't true all right, it encompasses that, but it, 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 it comes from the Greek word to choose. And what it means is someone who is self-willed and totally opinionated and who won't submit to the truth and will be divisive in having a battle to get other people to agree with them and go against the truth. So what it's denoting here, it's not any particular false teacher or anything like that, but it's denoting the attitude of the person who is self-willed have (coughs) their strongly held opinions that they're going to thrust on everyone, (coughs) irrespective of whether those opinions tie up with the word of God or not. And it denotes someone who is unshiftable from their opinion, irrespective of what the Bible teaches. And the characteristic is that (coughs) with these people, what whatever their be in the bonnet is, might be one thing, might be lots of things. The whole point is that that is more important to them than anything else. It's more important to them than relationships, it's more important to them than general godliness. Do you see what I mean? Everything is subject to whatever it is they're banging on about. Do you see what I mean? So to that extent they're obsessive and they will happily turn brother against brother and sister against sister in their com- campaign to get whatever it is they're pushing heard, all right. So that's that's the point here. Now, obviously, it encompasses heretics in the sense of false teachers, because by definition, when you get people teaching false teaching, they're teaching stuff that goes right against the Bible, but they're not going to listen, you know, and they're not going to let anyone put them straight. Now, what Paul says with someone like that, <coughs> and notice they get two chances, crumbs. He says, warn. Them once. Now, this word warn is nuthesia, and it comes from the Greek words for mind and the verb to put. And it literally means a putting in mind. And what Paul is saying, look, with these people, by definition, there's a truth they're fighting against. All right? There's something that the Bible teaches that they don't like, and they want to change it. They want to change everyone else. So what Paul says is, look, put what the Bible says about that in their minds. Tell them what the Bible says. Show them from the Bible. Demonstrate it beyond all reasonable doubt from the Bible, do it once, all right? Now, for any reasonable person, that should at least end their campaign. You see what I mean? And at least make them think again and pray and go through the scriptures again. You see what I mean? But of course, with these people, it does no such thing. It just makes them even more determined. So then Paul says, Do it twice a second time. Put what the Bible teaches in their mind. Go over it with them. If they'll let you, I mean, they they might not even let you, but nevertheless, you've got to try and do that. And then he says, at that point, if um, they still won't have it, if they're not willing to drop the fight, if they're not willing to come under what the Bible teaches about whatever it is they're going on about, then he says, have nothing to do with them. I mean, you know, ultimately this would be a church discipline thing. And uh, and what this this you know this Greek word means, it's paratiomai, and it means to ask aside. And it, it means to beg off, to refuse to be with, or, re- or to reject. And one way to translate this is excuse yourself from them. Once you've got someone like this, once it's clear that this is what they're like, just excuse yourself from them. There's no point carrying on with them, do you see what I mean? Because they're only going to use uh, kind of like what fellowship they can get to be pushing whatever divisive stuff it is they're pushing. And so this is why it's important that people like this ultimately are isolated so they can't do any damage to the church. Um, Just just go to Romans 16 and see a similar um, point that Paul made when he wrote to the Roman church. And uh, right at the end of uh, Romans... Um, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. And uh, oops, I've got one Corinthians, that would help if I Romans. And he says, um, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. You see, it's their being their bonnet. It's not the Lord's truth that they're fighting for. It's their own opinions, see. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. That's one of the ways that they cause division wherever they go. And so it's, it's, you know, important, I mean, this is tough, you know, but church discipline at times have to be done. Sometimes it wouldn't even need to be church discipline. If people like this in a church really did get the message from everyone that no one was interested anymore, then you'll probably find they'll leave anyway, you see what I mean? But if they don't leave, and if they won't get this right, if they won't back off whatever crusade they've got, well then obviously it's the sort of thing that is going to have to be um, eventually uh, you know, a matter of church discipline. And, uh, and then he says, you may be sure that such a person... And there's no suggestion that this isn't a Christian. These are Christians. This is the whole point. These are wayward believers. This is why they're such a, such a problem. He says, you may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, this, this word warped, and some Bible translations translate this as perverted. They say they're perverted. Um, it's extrafu, and it means to turn inside out, all right, um, to change entirely. Now, think, what do these people do? When you've got Christians who are pushing false teaching, whatever it is, all right, and, and it seems to, you know, now, there are some people, they've got unbiblical ideas and they adhere to false teaching, but they're not pushing it. That's, you know, that's not a problem. This is talking about the people who are pushing it. They're evangelistic about their false doctrine. That's the point. That's why they're troublesome. If someone's got a false doctrine and they just keep it to themselves and they're otherwise living a godly life, no problem. That's, that's fine. But it's talking about the people who are pushing it. They're evangelistic about it. And, of course, the point is that whenever you've got people, sh- you know, like pushing these unbiblical ideas, that what they've got to do is they're making right wrong and they're making wrong right. Can you see what I mean? They're turning everything upside down. They, 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 they produce a mirror image or like a photographic negative of the truth. Everything is upside down every which way. It's, it, it's, all, it's, it's, it's a perverted thing because everything becomes the opposite of what it should be. A truth becomes the lie. Lies become the truth. And of course, it's worse than that because if you've got someone pushing a false doctrine, they believe that they have the truth that everyone else needs to know. So to them, people who are holding to true doctrine are the baddies. And they're the ones being led by the Spirit to correct everyone. You see what I mean? So again, the innocent become guilty, the guilty are innocent. They're innocent in their eyes, but they're the guilty ones. And the others who are simply standing on what the Word of God says, well, then they're the guilty ones, you see. So everything is reversed and turned inside out. They'll argue black is white and they'll argue up is down to get their own way. So what they do is they change what you would call the natural order of truth. Alright? Now that's why obviously this word can be translated perverted. Now, obviously, when we think of perversion, normally we, we think of a sexual thing. But there are other types of perversion as well. But, of course, the thing about sexual perversion is that it changes the natural order of things. And so, really, what Paul is doing here is he's drawing a parallel between spiritual perversion and sexual perversion. Now, let's, you know, let's just run with that for a few moments, because it, it, it can tell us a lot about the things to look for to look out for in people that might be the giveaway that they are going to be the troublemakers or, you know, not going to be, but maybe already are. So let's just, just you know, take one or two, you know, insights about, you know, what, you know, how sexual perversion works and you can see that there's a spiritual equivalent to that. I mean, for instance, take voyeurism. Now, there are some people, they have a totally wrong interest in things concerning other people and none of their business you know, like peeping toms and things like that. Now there's a spiritual voyeurism that you can get that is equally perverted. And it's people who, they want want to get to know you, but they want to get to know you, not because they want to get to know you, but because they want to know all about your problems and they want to help you sort your problems out. They want to get inside your head because they want to be your counselor. They want to be the ones who can guide you psychologically. Can you see the point? I mean, out on the Christian scene today, obsession, absolute obsession, with counselling. All these different counselling techniques you know, with counsellor, counselee relationships and stuff like that. And this incredible emphasis on getting into people's heads and getting into their emotions and stuff like that. It's not so much you that people like that are interested in. They're interested in your problems because they get a buzz out of solving other people's problems. Can you see what I mean? It's not coming out of a relationship of friendship. It's coming out of their need... To be able to be a peeping tom on other people's private lives, you see what I mean? And I've met so many Christians that it, it, you know that pretty much immediately you become aware they're not trying to get to know you; they're trying to worm their way inside your head. Because they consider themselves to be the psychological counsellor who can help you with your problems. You see, we've all come across this, haven't we? That's a sign of this, all right? The moment you get people like that, and of course they manipulate, and the trouble is they're relating to people, not asking the question, how can I bless and serve this person? What they're going around, they're simply meeting their own need. They're actually being selfish. They need to be needed. You You see the point? There's all the difference in the world between someone who's there for you if you need them, and someone who needs to be needed, and so has to all the time make you think you need them. Is there the point? That is a perversion. That's spiritual voyeurism, and it's to be avoided. Um, you know, it's it's spiritual peeping toms. So beware of Christians who come in with with this real emphasis on counselling and psychology and and all the looking inward all the time, that's, that's real. And of course, it's always them, they see themselves as being the counselor who can help. So, so be very careful about that. Um, also, you know, the thing as I've said about you know, perversion, it goes against the natural order. So whether you've got homosexuality, lesbianism, bestiality, these things, they go against the natural order, okay? Now, spiritually, the natural order is what we have taught in scripture. But there are Christians, who we're talking about here, and for them, they go against it. Their spirituality is twisted. So the point is, their spiritual desires are not what the Bible teaches. Their spiritual desires, they, they just aren't, you know, sort of, their spiritual desires just aren't normal. You see what I mean? Their emphases, um, their inner desires, in the same way that lust Lust can only look on its object as an object. There's no relationship. There's no caring. Lust is a totally selfish thing. Now, in exactly the same way, there are lots of people, Christians, and you know, they're what I call the super spiritual. And sort of like, they, they, they look on you as someone to minister to you see what I mean? All the time they need to be doing the ministering. They need to be bringing you words from the Lord. They need to be directing you. A lot of leaders are like this. You know, they they like the power. They like the control. They like to manipulate, okay? So you've got to be careful about that because true spirituality is not wanting to manipulate and control. True spirituality is wanting to serve, okay? And then a third thing about perversion, sexually, is that it's compulsion. These people can't stop. And again, when you get Christians, they're always, they've got certain ideas or things that they're imposing. They can't stop. They cannot keep quiet about things. Even when they know that no one else wants to know, they keep going on. You see, because they're under compulsion, they literally can't stop themselves from doing it. And so therefore, again, that's a sign of something being wrong. And then also with perversion, it's pushy sexually pushy. Perverts impose what they want on other people, even to the point where they start assaulting people. Now, in exactly the same way, beware of people spiritually where you they're pushy, they're domineering, they're like a dog with a bone. The whole time they're in your face. Any, any opportunity to bring up their pet subject. You see what I mean? And so this is all part of what Paul is saying about, look, you've got to Be careful of these people. They are warped. They are spiritually perverted. And when you get people like that, literally, it's got to be once or twice. But we've we've experienced, I think through the years, probably we've been too soft as a church. If, uh, If we've learned anything, we probably haven't been quite as tough at times when we've needed to be. And we've certainly learned from experience that if you just try and keep bearing with these people, it don't work. They don't change. And the more you bear with them, in actual fact, the greater the damage they're doing in the church. And, uh, you know, so one does have to be, you know, very, very, very careful um, about that. You know, they become forceful, they're obsessive, they become a bit dishonest. But the whole point is they've got their agenda, their bees in their bonnet, and they just want to set the whole church right. And, you know, you've got spiritual danger when that happens. Okay. Right. Okay. And then you get his final remarks. He says... As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. So he says, I'm going to send a replacement, you know, to carry on, because obviously it was going to be a while before these churches had their own elders. <laughs> so he said, I'll send a replacement and then you you come and join me. Um, he said, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves. That's praised me again, you know, that... Bible translators, you know, over in the Lord and all that sort of stuff uh, to devote themselves to, to, to make sure they're doing right and good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. And that's another thing to look out for. I mean, true spirituality, I mean, the rubber always hits the, you know, hits the road somewhere and people must provide for themselves. Um, You know, the church isn't meant to be a soft touch for sponges. Um, You know, and sometimes you get that going on, certainly. Everyone ought to live a productive life. And then he says, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then he ends by saying, grace be with you all. And that's Paul, every letter he writes, it starts in his greetings with grace and it ends with grace. Because that's his theme. Everything is of the grace of God. So basically what we've got, in the letter to Titus is that that, that if, if a church does this, if people in the church live like this, hold each other to this, then they're gonna be safe. But if we don't, then Satan will get the, the troublemakers in and tear the church apart and there'll just be chaos. Now obviously, elders have a particular role to play in that, policing the church, protecting the church. But remember, the point about elders is they're they're the safety net. They're there to do it if no one else does it. Other brothers can do it, but the point is the elders will if no one else does. So, you know, it's tremendously important that this this epistle, this letter, deals very much with the dangers that are going to face any church. We've got to be aware of those dangers all the time and to, to you know, to meet them and to be as, as tough as, as we need to be when we do that. Um, but also realizing, you know, again, there was so much in this letter, wasn't there, about God's order for men and women and family life. Yeah, and of course, today we're up against feminism, which is one of the most insidious things we're ever going to face. And obviously we're going to face at time trouble and division over that subject as well. But in Titus, we have, it's almost like a little manifesto. Um, if, if we only had this bit of the Bible and nothing else, if we stuck to this, then we'd do all right. And we'd know that the Lord would be protecting us um, and that Satan would be having a job. Uh, doing uh, what, what, what he was wanting to do and to uh, uh, destroy us as a church and uh, divide us off from each other. Okay, right, we'll leave that there.